Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today's guest is actor, writer, director, playwright, John Polono. It's very important for me that this interview airs uncensored. John Polono started playwriting and has written things such as Lost and Found, Lost Girls, and Small Engine Repair. Recently, his play, Small Engine Repair, has been adapted into a movie. I discovered Small Engine Repair during a very dark time in my life, and I went to see the play five times. Yes, that's right. I saw that play five times. About six years later, I had the balls to ask him if I could do the play, and I did it last summer, and it changed my life. It ended up being a very small world in that one of my guests, Shay Wiggum, ended up doing the movie adaptation of Small Engine Repair. John Polono is someone who's had such a profound impact on me. He's been so open to me, so great to me, and I've learned so much from him and his work. John has such an amazing future ahead of him and so many awesome projects. However, this was my first field recording and it was a trial by fire. I apologize that it's not up to our usual standards, but I promise you that the interview is superior and one of my favorites. Here it is. John Polono, how you doing, man? Good, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. It's great to have you on. I'm such a big fan of you as a human and just your writing. I've never really had the chance to kind of explain the story of how I discovered small engine repair, so I kind of wanted to save it for the air. In 2000, was it 2013 when that, was that MCC? Uh, yeah, in 2000, yes, 2013. Yeah, so I was like going through a breakup and it was like the darkest point in my life. And I had like four or five friends staying with me pretty much on like suicide watch. Jeez. I was just drinking and doing tons of drugs. And uh, I heard about the play because I was a big fan of James Batchdale. And, you know, Who I love Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's one of the best, man. And the Lortels is such an iconic theater. I love seeing things there whenever I can and supporting it. And I didn't, I didn't know your work, you know, and I didn't know anything about it. And I find those tend to be the best theatrical experiences when you kind of know nothing. Mm-hmm. And all my friends were like, dude, anything that's like, nah, you at a bar, let's go. And like, none of them were theater going crowds. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and they were all like, not really friends with each other. They were all there for me. So it was cool. It was, it was quite rare to get those people into the theater. And, you know, I, I think you only get the first viewing experience, whether it's theater, you know, cinema once that, right. that feeling of discovering it. And I remember like 20 minutes in, we all look at each other and we're like, this is fucking incredible. And it was the first time I had laughed in a really long time. Oh, that's great. And it was the most healing thing. And, and, and it, I wasn't really focusing on my acting and I wasn't really, I just wasn't put together, man. And that inspired me in, in so many ways to get back into it. And I wouldn't be here. I mean, obviously I discovered you through it, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it weren't for that piece. So that's great. everything in my career, I credit to you because you really sent me back on track without even knowing. But that's so beautiful, man. What do you think it was about the play that resonated so deeply with you? I, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which mm-hmm. is not quite Manchester, but not far from. And mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends like that. And when I drink and do drugs, man, I'm, I'm pretty much... So there's... We should say for the audience listening, Small Engine Repair is a play you've written about three best friends who meet up under unusual circumstances right. and <laughs> it takes a crazy turn. 
And uh, probably, spoiler alert, we're going to dig into some things about the play. But uh, I think it was just being stuck and I identified with those characters and being in a rut and just kind of like that amalgamation of drama and comedy was exactly what I needed at that Mm -hmm. moment. And it's so funny, like, as soon as I saw that play, I bought my tickets that night to see it again. Mm -hmm. And then I had a director who's having a moment in New York on this podcast. And he was like, dude, you took me to see it. And I was like, no, I didn't. And he was like, he was like, dude, yeah, you took me. And I realized like, I went one time in a blackout and just bought tickets and took this guy to fucking play. <laughs> That's, that goes to show you the state I was in. But man, yeah, it was, oh man, I needed it. And then sure enough, you know, six six years later, I was like, I kind of felt, not that I'm, I'm 29, but I was like, I want to do this. And yeah. you were cool enough to let me do it, man. And so here we are. Of course, man. I mean, because that's unusual. Usually the plays just get done and you don't hear it. Now, I think what happens is in New York, because we had had a production there. Yeah. For whatever reason, it's just the, the request floated by me, <laughs> which doesn't always happen. Like, they do it all the time. Yeah. You don't hear about it. But every now and then you have to give it. And I, I think it's because, you know, the MCC production had been... Um, reviewed in New York and then also because we were doing the movie for whatever reason my agents were like hey take a look at this so I'm obviously really glad that that worked out and I was like I mean I'm always like I'm so excited when anybody wants to do anything especially that play yeah that play is like tends to attract a certain sort of kind of you know that sort of archetype of like you know actors who look at it and they're like you can do that play reasonably cheap and it also gravitates towards theater companies that are a little edgier and risky riskier yeah you know um they're not like the lord theaters where 350 people sit in there you know it's more of a thing the kind of theaters like that's why i got into theater you know for stuff that pushes the envelope so uh anyway i was really obviously glad that we connected me too man it's a real honor and i'm so sorry i said no i'll fuck that (laughs) but usually i'm so sorry i missed that production by the way we were obviously oh no man and and, and, yeah it's crazy enough you know a friend of mine ended up doing the movie who was going to come to the play but we'll dig into all that so i I like to start at the beginning so you grew up in the northeast right i did i was born in uh, long island um we lived there my parents are my uh my dad's born and raised in queens my mom is born and raised in rhode island and she moved down to new york city for various melodramatic reasons <clears throat> and then they met we were we only lived there until i think it was about three or four yeah and then we lived my dad moved as an engineer he moved out we moved to ohio for like a year and a half and then we moved when i was in second grade to uh New Hampshire. Okay. Londonderry, New Hampshire, which is sort of Manchester adjacent, as where it's just the play in the movie. And then, yeah, I just grew up there. And, and it, University of New Hampshire and all that shit. And your your childhood memories, like New Hampshire's home for you, not yeah, long? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, yeah. I was three years old when I moved out of Long Island. Although I did live in New York City for a while and, you know, have so many roots there that feel close to that. You know, I go to Ellis Island, I see my grandparents. There, yeah. So I have a deep connection in New York City, but of course, in my formative years, I was raised in in new hampshire so that's always what i consider where i grew up and and in these formative years what 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 were the arts like were your parents encouraging you to get into them or how did that happen yeah i mean they were you know it's hard i it wasn't until i moved lived in new york city and went to a film school for an exchange program where did you go Uh, i went to nyu so oh i went to nyu too i wanted to go to nyu because of martin scorsese yeah and um my parents bought these investment properties in Manchester, these like slums. And the idea was they were going to sell one and use that money. Hey, you can go to wherever you want to college. So they, my parents were bankrupt when I was in college, high school. So just ended up going to UNH 
and I saved money. <laughs> I had a lawnmowing business. Saved money and then paid for this uh, summer-long program at NYU called Sight and Sound. Yeah. Which is like two semesters worth squeezed into a semester. I know the class well. I've done right. so many of the films. So I was like, I went out and did that, and that, that changed my life. I did that in between my junior and senior year of college. Wow. Uh, while I was at UNH. So I got credits to UNH while I did it <coughs> and then stayed in their shitty little dorm. I was like, why is this dorm so cheap? Which one did you stay at? Reuben Hall. Oh, yeah. That's where... That's so... There's amazing. no air conditioning. Yeah, it's it all... Like <laughs> Uh, anyway, an amazing experience. First time I'd ever sort of been in, I was terrified initially, but it was the first time I'd ever sort of walked into a room and I was filled with more diversity than I'd ever seen for sure, more international people than I'd ever grown up around. And most importantly, people who were just dedicated to the arts, like they had a film language, they wanted to do those things. I sort of, artistically, it was too sort of chicken shit. I think I kind of closeted that part of myself a lot. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think, I didn't grow up in an area which had is at least from my perspective, a huge, uh, access to the arts. Yeah. It's not, I think my parents were f pragmatic and, <clears throat> you know, I don't know, it's complicated. I think on one hand, if I had had parents who were like, oh my God, you're a genius. Let me read everything you write. That would have been nice. But yeah. I had the opposite where I was like, I didn't read anything. So yeah, I just proved. made me try that much harder. Yeah. So, uh, and it's just New England thing, man. You just keep your cards close to your chest. I mean, they suck. Small and repair off Broadway, and they came out, and then my mom was like, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of you. That was really nice. God, it's so much colder here than I thought it would be. Like they just don't you know, like <laughs> do that. So uh, yeah, so you just don't look for that. Yeah, you know. Um, so and you know, I was really into sports, and I was really into uh, kind of hiding that part of myself, the more yeah. sensitive, like artistic thing. I was kind of embarrassed about it. You know, I never would have told anybody, really. You know, and I started writing short stories and shit like that, but. And I was like in third grade. I, it's funny, man. You definitely get, as a child, I think you are shaped by what you get rewarded by. So in third grade, we had to write like fictional stories. And I was just, I went to this fucking library and I found this book about like a kid who had a raccoon as a pet. And I love that book. Yeah. So I literally plagiarized it. <laughs> Changed some of the names. I mean, I took what was in there and like four scenes, I'm like 50% of the book. Like, yeah, literally plagiarized and changed the name, put in like some other sequences and drew a bunch of pictures. And it like won the Young Authors Award in like New Hampshire. No way. So I went out and did all this stuff. And I was like, right, I didn't know. And then I remember I got the award and all this shit. And I remember my third grade teacher came up to me and she had found the book in the library. She's like, did you copy this? And I was like, yeah, just some pictures. <laughs> but that sort of lot, that plagiarism launched my sort of, you know, career. And then, and then I kept writing year after year, just these short stories and, and, did you have like some some guidance on on writing mentors that kind of helped you develop your style? So no, to speak? not I, Stephen King. I was obsessed with. Got it. Uh, just in reading that, and what I think I initially was gravitated towards horror because of the sort of shock factor and the like. I kind of think like in the environment I was raised in, it wasn't like the soft introspective writing that I've you know gravitated towards later in life. It was more like dude, this is so fucked up. Read this. Yeah. And I remember like in high school, a big sort of uh, defining moment for me, I was, I had a creative writing class. This, uh, I had two teachers that were great in high school for one was Miss Giddings, Janet Giddings. She was this lovely, soft lady with glasses who was just super positive about everything. And, you know, I wrote some essay about seeing a dog hit by a car and she was like, Oh, I was crying and all this stuff. And she read it in front of class. So that was like, Oh my God. Wow. And then I had this guy, Mr. Connolly, 
in a creative writing class and like he would let you write whatever you wanted to language content whatever and i i wrote the story that when i look back i'm like jesus i'm like if i wrote that today i'd probably get arrested it was like just some terrible story about I don't think I'd ever even had sex at that point about a kid who goes to pick up his date and he's going to get laid and he's so excited. And then he's, the mother needs help lifting something up. uh, And then she slips in the ladder, hits her head and dies. And he like covers with the carpet. So it won't interrupt the date. I mean, it was just terrible. Yeah. But I thought it was funny and people would laugh. So I was like, cool. I just went for sort of the shock value of that. But that was a very seminal moment, having, reading that story in class and having people like, oh my God, like hang on to it. Yeah. It was the first taste I had of something sort of theatrical. I can do this. Or I can do this, but also like, I like this. I like, you know, keeping an audience in mind and doing that in a way that I felt Stephen King did when I read. And then I went to college and, you know, became an English major. Uh, Again, I was too much of a pussy to just say, hey, I want to be a writer. So I was an English communications dual major, studying, taking creative writing classes, but I didn't go to like Iowa. I didn't go, you know, I wanted to go to film school, but I stayed local because, I had to pay for it. Yes. I I think I was, I think my fear of really being who I feel like I'm meant to be, I think it probably ate up 10 years of my career, you know, uh, in, 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 when I, instead of hitchhiking and living in Colorado and snowboarding and working construction, I mean, in one way that those life experiences feed into it, but I think it took me a really long time to have the balls to just say, I'm, this is what I am. Same as I opened the podcast and I credit yeah. you for that. And, uh, and I'm curious to ask you, you know, what, while you were doing this writing, at, at what point did you decide to kind of dip your toes into acting? Was that a logical progression of, of, of reading your writing? Like, how did that start to come together? Well, I did, uh, when I went to that NYU course, you know, you're in this little film crew and, uh. Is that okay? My dog's walking around with his oh. nails. That's fun. <laughs> you do these like film crews and then you just act in your own short films and shit and other people's short films. And they would always ask me to do it. I was really good at it. I had no idea. I just kind of had that within me. I've always been sort of animated and it just clicked. So I did that at NYU and then I watched the short films when we, they came out and I was like, everybody's like, wow, you're really fucking good at these. Yeah. You're really good. And I was like, really? <laughs> so then when I moved out to LA eventually... I had I was working in the mailroom at Castle Rock Entertainment, and there was a guy uh, named Phil Santani who's still a friend to this day. And he and I hit it off. Like I was actually I was a temp at uh, at Castle Rock, and they eventually hired me. And I was in the mailroom, and so Phil was like my like the the dude who would like show me the ropes. Yeah, and he was taking this acting class. He's like, you should check it out. And I was like, well, at that point, I was like, well, I want to be a writer. I want to be a screenwriter. Yeah, and he the conventional wisdom, which is true, is like all writers should take some kind of acting class. It definitely helps. So I started taking this acting class. Uh, It was Laura Gardner. And, you know, you don't, you don't do scenes from Pulp Fiction. You don't do scenes from like, you know, The Wire. You do plays. Yeah. And I had been at that point in my life to like one play. So the teacher would get, uh, the first play I ever did in this, that part of this intro class was The Rainmaker, uh, not The Rainmaker, uh, Death of a Salesman. Oh, yeah. Playing Biff. That was my first play. Oh, is it really? Yeah, I played Willie Loman. Oh, yes. (laughs) So I read this play and I was like, holy shit. So I just started to consume all these plays, all these classic plays that, I mean, even though as an English major, you read literature, we didn't really read plays other than Charles House and Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. So I just started to devour these. Michael Malley had a great play. And then, you know, Lieutenant Inishmore, Pillow Man, all this stuff. McDonough, I could totally see. Donna, yeah. Man, yeah. Um, 
you know, Sarah Kane. I started to read all this stuff and I was like, holy fuck. Yeah. It just clicked with me. So then I started to write monologues for myself at first. Like, like Eric Bogosian style. Just to do yeah. the class. Yeah. You know? Okay. <clears throat> and then, you know, instead of doing scenes, a lot of the people would be like, hey, can you write a scene for me? So I wrote a scene for me and this other girl who did it and it was like great. And it was like a one act play. And then other people started asking. So I just kept writing scenes for other people in class. Wow. And they were more, not so much scenes as like really small one acts. And then at some point we got a group of us together, including my now wife. And we started a theater company and we were going to produce a selection of one act plays, four of them, two of which were mine. The theater <coughs> company being Rogue Machine. This is, this is before Rogue Machine. Okay. It's called okay. Jabberwock. Okay. Which eventually that 501c3 status of Jabberwocky became Rogue Machine. Got it. So we did that and, uh, you know, these one acts and, and we did one show of it and did really well. You know, we had like acting teachers direct us put the money together, you know, you run out and you set up the thing really quick and you did it. We had a great time. And then we raised a little more money and we did one and we got our first review. Back in the day, the only way you could get a review was if you went to certain local papers and you bought an advertise ad for like 350 bucks, wow. then you were guaranteed a review. Other than that, we couldn't get anybody to review us. And then I remember we did this play, uh, this collection of one acts called Thicker Than Water. And I called Stan, uh, Stephen Lee Morris. I left him a voicemail and I was like, listen, man, you know, we can't get a review. Would you please do it? I follow you. It'd be mean the world to us. And, yeah. you know, to his credit, he showed up. Might be the only good review I've ever gotten by Stanley Lee Morris. But he gave a really good review at a very important time. And it's going to go in LA Weekly. And we just started getting all these people to go to it. It was like, great. So then I was like, I'm going to write a full-length play. So I wrote this play called Lost and Found for my company of Jabberwocky. Like, literally everyone in the company. And all eight, maybe like the six of us. Uh, I'll get a roll in it. And then we cast a couple. And then I put an ad in this, there's this Yahoo user group called Big Cheap. It's all LA theater. Or maybe it was Craigslist. I fucking don't remember. Yeah. And that's how I met John Flynn. Wow. A couple directors emailed me. Most of them were nuts. But John Flynn, who was like, I, he just got off Strong Medicine. He's like, I'm looking to direct something. He read the script. He really loved the script. And then we were off to the races. And John brought a level of design to it. And we raised money. And we did it at this place called the Electric Lodge. And it was an, one of the best theatrical experiences I ever had. Um, everyone was just such good friends and so in love. And the play was very, very dark, but funny and about a family and very sort of edgy, but beautiful and like, you know, a little schmaltzy, but like loving and, yeah. and different than was sort of an emergence of my kind of brand of theater, which is like sort of irrespective of theater. I'm not writing like my homage to Chekhov. I'm like, fuck it. Here's a story that yeah. captures what theater can do. So... Yeah, we did that, and that was a really big hit. We ended up extending, and it just opened up a lot of doors. And then John Flynn, he was like, look, I want to start Jabberwocky. But to back up a little bit, it's like during those plays, that's when my wife and I, who were friends for years, just in this class together, we started kind of secretly dating. And then, uh, yeah, we got pregnant, we got married. And so, like, that acting class, that Phil Santani, that guy I met, I mean, that's why I have my wife. That's yeah. why I opened the door for me and that's sort of the acting you know and then I was we got pregnant and we had our daughter and I had to you know make some more money and you know, we were auditioning a little bit but I didn't know what the fuck I was doing yeah and I started working <laughs> I, had, I became an assistant to the PR department at Castle Rock Entertainment okay and so I had some PR experiences and I would you know I would write during the day I would write in my off hours and stuff like that so um, I got a job at an agency uh, for my uh, Xbox, 
box for like video games, which I liked video games. I was like, this is cool. Making enough money. And then during that time, I just started to work on it. And then eventually, I got to a point where I was making enough as a an actor doing some TV and shit, but yeah. especially commercials. I had a, tons of commercials at that time. Wow. I was sort of in that sweet spot, you know, boyfriend, yeah. dad, whatever. And then uh, I just freelanced in PR and then... Did you find acting fulfilling? I mean, I know doing commercials can be tough, but... I loved it. I mean, it wasn't artistically fulfilling to do commercials, but I loved acting. I mean, to me, acting, being on stage, being on a set, is scratch the same itch I always felt playing sports. Okay. And when I got too old to be on teams, I missed it. But then acting, rediscovered that. And I remember being in a play with a, 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 an actor who was like in his mid-70s. And I saw how much fucking fun he was having. And I was like, this is great. And I'm like, you're never not having fun. Yeah. And you're always challenged. I'm like, what else is going to get a 75-year-old dude to be on stage running lines with me at like 28? Yeah. Just together. You know what I mean? And I was like, this is great. So I always loved it. And I feel like acting made me a better writer, writing made me a better actor, and, and sort of that whole loop. And, you know, then just the biggest, the most sort of fulfilling acting was being in plays I wrote or other plays, being on stage, I did a ton of plays, but commercials paid well and it was yeah. cool. I mean, you know, whatever. But, and then some of the TV shit was cool, but not, not, most of it wasn't really heavy lifting. And during your time at NYU, did you have an idea of like, that's where I got to do theater? Because you had the reverse commute. You came to LA and got the theater. Yeah, I didn't, honestly, dude, I, the, the, I'm not even joking. The second play I ever saw I was in, like, I remember seeing a play in, at the Peterborough Players when I was in New Hampshire and I hadn't seen another maybe I saw one in New York for some girl I wanted to get you know, I wanted yeah. to hook up with and it was awful it like started with some guy pissing on stage and I was like what the fuck is this but she, anyway and then it was funny because like I'm like hitting on this girl and, and she's like in lingerie getting like beaten on stage and I was like this is fucking weird I actually wrote a one act play based on that wow but um, what were you asking me? How you did the reverse commute? Of oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just came to L.A. because... Because everyone comes here to get into film and TV. Yeah, and I mean, I came here yeah. for film and TV, and then I got bit by the theater bug. And, you know, so L.A. has the biggest pool of actors in, in the world. So there's tons sure. of great talent. And there's great theater community here. It just is different than LA, New York. And did, did you... Because you didn't do the New York... Did you have an idea of how to navigate it here? Or were you kind of just trial by fire? Sort of trial by fire. Yeah. And it was like that group of young people and it was right before we had a kid and then, you know, we rehearsed that Lost and Found in the garage of a house while our daughter was like sleeping in the house with a baby monitor. So we're rehearsing and with all our friends. So, you know, we just juggled it. We made it work. We didn't know any better, you know, uh, kind of like what you guys did. You, just, yeah. you do it out of heart and you, and, but you don't do it for, uh, you don't really have a, a, an end goal in sight except to just do the work. Totally. And, you're not like, oh, I'm going to get discovered by this. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Man, that seems to never work. But Shay said this on the podcast, and I think it's the most true statement I've heard in a long time. It's like, everyone wants to win fucking American Idol now, but nobody wants to be Janice or Bob Dylan playing the subways. Right. You know what I mean? Doing, yeah. doing the work. And that's the problem, I think, with the business today. And that's awesome that you were in it for, for the real work. Well, I mean, I think part of it was me also being embarrassed to be like, hey, I'm an actor. Hey, I'm this. I was just like, well, I also had a corporate type job, you know, yeah. and I had to, I mean, look, I've had fucking a hundred jobs in my life and it was all manual labor until I moved out to LA and then, you know, started working at these places. But, and they kind of knew I did that stuff, but I couldn't, you know, nobody wants to hire you and no one wants to have you be like an account manager and you're paying your bills and getting health insurance for your new baby. 
if you're like, I'm also an actor. So I just innately kind of hid that. And they knew it, but it was like, I had to be a hobbyist yeah. in order to have that. And it took a while to sort of transition. And then talk to me about <clears throat> when fatherhood started, because in Small Engine Repair and Roll of Seconds and Lost Girls, fatherhood's such an integral part of those narratives that obviously had a paramount oh, change. God, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, having when Sophie was born it suddenly became like that shit or get off the pot moment where yeah. I was like, stop fucking around. And it broke through my own sort of bullshit fear of, of failure or fear of just like saying, this is what I am. Cause you can always like, if you show up in an acting class, you're like, I don't really want to fucking be here. Huh? Let me learn the model. I don't care. I'm just going to walk around like this anyway. You know what I'm saying? Like that back door I always had with all that shit. So with, with having a kid, it amplified in, un, in sort of unearthed all of this energy and stamina I had to do what I wanted to do. Because I was like, i got to do it now. I can't fuck around. Yeah. I mean, when I was single in L.A., it's like, honestly, like my full-time job was just trying – was getting laid. Yeah. I get it. You know he, what I mean? I did the same thing when I was here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, or New York. Anyway. Yeah. Even when I, by the way, I went to New York all the time. Yeah. The same game. And, and I had a good time, but it was like I wasn't putting all that energy into something more profound. Yeah. And having a daughter really looking at her in that crib and being like, Jesus, I, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this. Yeah. And figure it out and just polarize it. Maybe I won't, but I have to try. Yeah. And really, really try. So that that's what it was. But obviously, to me, that's a huge part of who I am and a huge part of, of having a kid and looking at her was suddenly like, oh, fuck, this is what, you know, emotions are. And this is this is what it's about. And was that the impetus to write Small Engine Repair? Coming having her come into your life and you know Certainly the heart of it yeah. and having that explosive level of emotion with a kid that you will literally do anything for and yeah, for sure. I, I wouldn't uh, yes, definitely being a father and having that inside me made me suddenly, you know, realize the stakes of that play personalize the stakes of that play. Mm -hmm. And was that a narrative you had in, in the works for a while, the idea for, or did it kind of, because it, it flows so well. And well, it started, I mean, I think that particular play was like, for sure, I, I, I wanted to say something about, and I didn't know it at the time, but like the sort of toxic masculinity thing. And yeah. I think for me, in the way I was grew up was always like, I did feel comfortable in like the tough guy world, but then I also had sisters and I also had that. So I kind of straddled those two things. And then I just, I, I created the Frank character as a, you know, lost and found, which I was in. Um, the character has shades of this. So I sort of, by doing that play, I was like, Oh, I'm good at that. Yeah. So I kind of created the Frank character around in that, you know, doing death of a salesman doing, you know, uh, uh, small tragedy, any number of plays I had done that had that, these different facets of the character that I'm like, I just like playing that. So I, you know, created a character that I felt had this stuff that I knew I could hit with the fat part of the bat. Yeah. So I tailored that for me. And then the other characters just started to gravitate around that. And I mean, I've always been good at writing characters and dialogue and I just felt like I made them really specific and, did you have a swino and a packy? Like, were those based loosely on friends of yours? No, I mean, inspired by yeah. to some extent, um, but not really. I mean, I, maybe as a starting off point, I think, look, everything you write, I think you just pull from some totally. stuff. But those characters, interesting in their journey, 
they just created their own voices, you know, and they had that. I mean, look, I grew up with a bunch of guys who had a ball busting dynamic, um, for sure, you know, and so which carried through with like every guy relationship I've ever had since then. Yeah. So, but I knew that sort of archetype and I knew that neighborhood and I just knew that sort of cadence. Um, and that Northeastern Manchester culture had a big impact on that, on that piece. Was that something that you were reflecting on growing up and just being in LA? Did it change the context of, of your environment growing up? Yeah, I mean, I think what happens is I didn't want to grow up. I, mean, I didn't want to live in New Hampshire. I knew I had to leave and I left. It's not so much being homesick, but it's just as my voice as a writer was created, I was just like, I know that world better than any other world. So small injury repair could have taken place in upstate New York, but I just felt, oh, let, let me just literally make it my ba- the backyard of where I grew up. Yeah. And not me, but characters I just know. I just know how they sound. Yeah. I can have a couple of drinks and sink into that thing. <laughs> I just knew the authenticity of it would aid the story. So that's just why I did that. And, you know, I think at that point in, as a writer, I was starting to sort of see, you know, uh, you know, Lost and Found took place in Medford, Massachusetts, because I was like, who fucking cares about Manchester, New Hampshire? It's Medford. Yeah. And then the next play I wrote took place in Maine. And then I was like, well, look, maybe I just write a play that takes place like literally where I grew up. Yeah. Just because, I mean, really on a lazy level, I'm like, I know the streets. I know where they eat. I just know that <laughs> stuff. There's no research. Yeah, of course. And you write it's like the more specific you are, the more universal it is. Now, I do think. I mean, I do think you write what you know, but I also think you can get pigeonholed to that and you don't want to do that. Yeah. But in this particular instance, I was like, well, fuck it. Let me do it. I just knew I could make it truthful. And if, if I was to have it take place elsewhere, I would just be spending more time, you know, researching and doing all that stuff. Yeah. I just thought it'd be fun. I mean, honestly, kind of that play started out sort of as an exercise. My wife was producing Late Night. There was a play, uh, Sunset Limited by Cormac McCarthy at, at Road Machine in a Small Space. And she was like, hey, why don't you do a late night? You, all that happens is they have a show from 8 to 10. And then you just have to use their set and their lighting grid. Yeah. So we had Sunset Limit. It was a shitty old apartment. And then I was like, I had this idea. Things started to click. I mean, I wrote the first draft of Small Repair in like three days. It changed immensely. Yeah. The, the first draft, everyone got along a lot better. And then we just infused it with, you know, every. And then I was just like, you know what? Every answer should be a question. Every fucking thing. So then that's when it started to pop. And then... You know, when I wrote that first draft, I was like, they're going to kill him at the end. And then once I got into it, I was like, that's not what this is about. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, we create, I wrote this play that lights are up. You do the play and lights are down because they had to use their light grid. And, and they their set was an old shitty apartment. And we're like, you know. So you had to go with a single setting. Had to go with a single setting. Yeah. How to use that. So we just put pegboard with tools and clamped it up. And, and you know, we had 15 minutes to set it up. And, wow. Uh, I what had, an exercise. It was. Yeah. I had done uh, Lost and Found uh, um, at the French Festival in New York. Um, and this guy, Andrew Block, directed it. And it was a huge hit at the Fringe. And it was a great experience. And Fringe Festival, have you ever done the Fringe? I haven't done it, but I, I have a lot of friends that have done it. Yeah, so you yeah. come in and you yeah. switch. So we already had that in mind. So yeah. I was like, we just took that thing. And he directed Lost and Found. And then he directed you know, Small Under Repair in L.A. And uh, so it was kind of built on that whole sort of aesthetic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we clicked it, and me and, you know, Bernthal was in it, and the guy Michael Redfield and Josh Hellman, we were all, we'd, like, change in the hallway. Wow. And then just, like, run on set. And it was a smash hit here in L.A. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we cause we had one preview with, like, six people, and we were like, I don't know, man, maybe people will walk out of this shit. We don't know. Because I was like, fuck it, it's late night. I'm not going to pull any punches. Yeah. And, 
Yeah, yeah, totally resonated. And as, as we spoke before we started airing, you know, the piece, it, it's a dark comedy, but it, it really is a drama at heart. But the comedy in the play in particular, it, it's so heavy. And I'm curious, when you were doing the play, because I did it as well, that was the only play in my life I've ever done that, like, every night it was so hard because I didn't know every audience was so fucking different. Like, yeah. where, where it hit, where it didn't hit, or, like, the lines that I thought were funny weren't funny the next night and the other lines that weren't funny were like getting huge like I've, I've never to been to some extent that's true with any play but I think small and repair it's amplified because something happens with where there's a you know these jokes there's two or three jokes at the beginning that you're like oh if they laugh at that that's the audience we yeah they laugh exactly at that. and some of the really fucked up lines if you get a big laugh you're like this is gonna be a fun night yeah a hundred percent by the way i mean look it's hard because when you're in a play it's hard not to judge an audience yeah but sometimes people just listen yeah some people laugh different or whatever some people laugh they like i mean i've had reviewers i've seen them and they're like <laughs> clapping and laughing and then they shit all over your play so you just never know oh birdman style fuck <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. uh but yeah for sure that we yeah we just didn't know but you didn't stop and and uh yeah, I mean, it was fucking great. We we did it, but it was ten thirty. People came in. They had a couple of drinks. You could bring a drink in there. It was rowdy. You know, we were breaking shit on stage. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing half the time. And then uh, we actually did that play one night, and the, the power went out at the theater, like before uh, Swain even shows up. And uh, we're like, they're gonna stop this, aren't they? And then we saw our technical director was there. He like ran back. We're like, let's just keep going. Yeah. So we had a bunch of flashlights on the stage, flashlights, and then a bunch of the theater members and the audience opened up their phones and like lighting us. So we're like, we keep going, we keep going, and the lights don't go on. The lights go on. We're like, fuck, we keep doing it. John shows up, you know, Brenthal's up, he's doing it. We're gonna go, shit's breaking left and right. Yeah. And we're like, just trying to get through it. <laughs> and we laugh at it now because we're like, you always think recollecting the story, you'd be like, and it was the most grounded we'd ever been. It was an awful show. We were yeah. way over. We're like, and then fucking Josh Hellman, who played Chad, he comes up on stage. He's, like, been waiting in the wings and, like, figuring out his improv line to be like, what, did you forget to pay the electric bill? <laughs> and we just fucking look at him, and we're like, huh. And then we just did the play. Um, and then it ended, and everybody, you know, whatever, clapped. Yeah, of course. You know, Kevin Spacey was in the audience that night. No way. Yeah. And, you know, did you talk to him after? Yeah, we did a little bit, but, like, it's funny, because, you know, he played Swaino. Swaino yeah. says the most awful shit of anybody. I mean, he's really the the character who is the most unfiltered libertine just says this shit. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, man, I, I mean, I didn't play Swaino, but like, I know the actors who have, they're like, sometimes I know I'm going to say a line. And those are the lines that people are either going to laugh at or groan. And it's hard. I know. I have my mom in the audience saying the pussy lines, which is like, Oh, and my mom oddly got it. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's so obvious. He's full of shit. If yeah. Play, right. Right. But so we did that. That show was awful. And afterwards we came out. Some people were like, it's so interesting that you decide to have the play where the lights go off. And we're like, no, that, that wasn't intentional. Um, but we, at that point, had done it so much. And then we moved it a bunch of times. But we were really, you know, I, I mean, we also had it when it was initially done. Like, you had to walk across the set to go sit in the audience. So you once you're there, you're there. You, yeah. the you can't fucking move. So people maybe wanted to leave. They just couldn't. And, and having this hit and being a father and, and having the fringe and all this, was this, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm asking here, but was this the moment where you're like, I, I can fucking do this? I mean, I always knew that I could write. I just didn't know necessarily how to translate that. I mean, I, I literally was just doing that feel the dreams bullshit, which is like build it and they will come. Yeah. 
you know, I wrote a bunch of terrible screenplays. I just didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't. Were you trying to sell them? Not even half. I was trying to sell them. I don't even know what I was doing. But then once theater hooked into me, I kind of subconsciously knew that it was like, okay, it's like remember Bill and Ted's where they're like want to be rock stars, but they're like, we don't know how to play guitar. And then they go in that time warp and they come back and they spent like 40 years and their hair's long. So I was kind of like, I can learn everything. Yeah. And so I just dove into theater and acting in theater, writing theater and doing it. And every play I did or wrote or everything, I could just feel it becoming clearer and clearer. And then I, you know, I always wanted to, but I was just like, let me just do this theater thing. Let me just see how far I can make it. And, you know, very early, I did a play called Razorback too earlier on. And, you know, there are people who like, I can make it into a movie. And, uh, you know, I looked into that, but of course it went nowhere. And then, you know, small engine repair had a lot of opportunities to, I mean, having a smash hit in LA is nothing short of a fucking coup, you know, a theater piece. Well, it did. I think back then, more so now the industry is like really hungry for playwrights back then, not as much. Um, it was sort of my manager I'm with Noah, who I think you met, he was actually in that very first reading um, of the play. He was like 22 years old. And now he's like a man, but he, he and the team were a little different at the time where they're like, look, let's not send out a screenplay as his writing sample. Let's send out plays. So they sent out, you know, small and repair, lost girls or whatever for people to read. And that's got me my first jobs because they, people were starting to be more open at different things. And now it's like they hire playwrights left and right, especially for TV. Yeah. Never having written screenplays or or TV teleplays, whatever. Wow. But at that time, it was kind of new. So I, I was just like focused on keep doing the work and trying to push forward and, and let's see where it goes. You know? and, and how did the Broadway bound thing happen? The, the producers obviously knew it worked here. They blocked No, that was kind of a longer thing. I mean, and we had... Um, what, what was the gap between the LA production and the New York production? Like two years. Two years. Which I thought was a long time, but it was really not. I, I remember when I saw the play, I was like, did this guy fucking write this last night? Because it was just so topical. Well, I updated a little bit technology-wise. Okay. And, and not a ton, though. But we had a, a reading. Um, I had this former manager, but we set up this reading with uh, Joe Mantello was directing. And it was like fucking Tom Sadowski and Pablo Schreiber and this guy Chris Fitzgerald. I don't know if you know who he is. I know. Really nice. Yeah. He was playing Packy and then this other dude. Who uh, and the reading was great and it filled up and I was like, oh, this is cool. But it, something in my heart felt off because I was like, you know what, that should be me there. Yeah. And Tom Sass is a great actor, but I was like, he's not. He, doesn't he was playing good. Frank. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it was a read. Yeah. <laughs> but they were also thrilled about the reading. They're like, let's get that exact cast. Let's hit go. Let's hit go. And I was like, huh. And um, then you know, I was talking to Bernthal, and Bernthal is like uh, one of my dearest friends, but he's just one of those rare guys I've met who like makes me feel empowered to do the shit I want to do. Yeah. Like, and he's like, fuck it, dude. He's like, we should do it. Like, why don't we do it? And I was like, you know what? You're right. And so we took control over it. And then we shopped around and said, Hey, he and I are going to be in it. And And at that point he had the walking dead. He had the walking dead season two. I mean, he, he wasn't a slam dunk that he is now. Yeah. And it was like up and coming. He wasn't the issue. It was more like, well, what are you going to do? So he had done a play with Joe Bonnie. We met with Joe. She read the play. She really liked it. Joe, who's collaborated with me on many plays now, she's like, I mean, I love her. I, I, yeah. She's, you know, she's my one of my most frequent collaborators in theater. I think she's incredible. So she ended up directing it. Bernthal had to drop out because he got that movie Fury. But we just said, fuck it. Let's do it. <clears throat> and MCC was, you know, gracious enough to do it and take it on. And, you know, I think because I did it in L.A. and maybe they read reviews or whatever. They're like, fuck it. Plus, it's kind of a cool story. The guy who wrote it is in it. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I've always stipulated like as an actor, I've always, it, you know, it's like harder if you produce something and you do it, you have extra to prove. A hundred percent. And I think my approach to that character was always like, I'm just going to act it real, not like, like the writer of me knows the story. I'm just going to act it that way as opposed to, I think the trap with any actor, but especially that character is to play him the lead. And it's like, Frank's strength in the movie and in the plays is just that he fucking listens. He's just there. Those other guys are much bigger. And, and broader and they take up more oxygen in the room but he just has shit going on so I was always like I want to do it but I also know I can do it in the way I think it needs to be done yeah and um, then working with Joe who just you know Andrew was a really great director we didn't know what we had we kind of did it in a rush and we did all that stuff and Joe took that work and just continued to refine it and deepen it and she had her own theme of the play that came out and I just learned so much from working with Joe and she ended up directing a lot of other plays I did but were James and both James's were those friends of yours? Or were I knew Badge very well. And when John had to drop out, he was like, let's talk to Badge. And I'm like, I'm, I've always been a huge fan of Badge. I did, you know, I became, we became brothers doing the play. But at yeah. that point, I really respected him and admired him. But Badge is, a, you know, he, he's a real sweet guy, but he's a bit of a kind of loner. He's yeah. not, not, not aloof, but he just, it takes a little while to get to know him. But once you're in with that guy, the guy will do anything for you. Totally. And, you know, PJ, do you know PJ? I've met him. A little, I mean, yeah. We had a mutual friend. Yeah. He's like, dude, he's like, I fucking hate the arms. Ziggy Sabaka at the wire, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which, ironically, we have that wire. I know. that, that dude, so when, that, when that line landed, I was like, was this planned? Like, this is the most meta shit I've ever seen. so weird. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and he, we had, you know, auditioned, and originally we were going to cast another actor, and then we were like, just PJs. Is that me? Oh, get this thing on. Oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, so he, you know, he came aboard, and then it was really hard to find Keegan, the the Chad character. And I don't know how you guys had that. We had a, the the and the same with the movie. That character was really hard to cast. Yeah, that uh, it's a quick little side, but it's funny. It's like my Chad works at the Chateau Marmont, and we, uh, oh, okay. I'm gonna like save this, you know, because I want people to experience the movie. But we went to a screening. I got to see it. It was incredible. But it was funny because the the guy that played my chat, I had to bring him because all my cast did the play for free. And he called out sick of the Chateau that night to come to the screen. <laughs> so, yeah. And then so we all ended up we ended the Chateau and he like hits his boss like, so funny thing, uh, yeah. I need to come. And they wouldn't let him come. So he just stand outside the whole time. Oh, shit. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I didn't want to make him think. So oh, like, that's why I kicked and I had to dip out. I don't, but yeah. Yeah. It was so funny, man. But yeah, so then that character is just, I mean, like you said, it's hard because you need to have, you know, he's got to have a certain physicality to him. Yeah. But he has to be a really good actor. And it's just hard in that, like, you know, it's like having a casting call. You're like stunning, drop dead, gorgeous, blonde with perfect body. Yeah. You're made probably the best actors. And Chad has a physical requirement, so a lot of times you get in guys who they're just younger and they're not at a point with career where they've really explored their craft because they haven't necessarily had to because they're just booking gigs. Booking genetics. Yeah. Yeah, booking genetics. So, uh, you know, we get lucked out. It sounds like you've got a right guy, but, you know, because that play doesn't work without him, the movie doesn't work out with him. It's just, it's, it's always an interesting thing uh, seeing that. And, and, and then I'm so curious, like, because the play is really deals with the. Not, it's really from, it's a female story, but it, there's no females in it. And that's so interesting that it, it resonates that way in this post Me Too environment. And, and who would have known, you know, in 2011 now that we live in that, but it, the, the play becomes so much more interesting now in that post. It does seem to resonate more now. I mean, 
you know, with like, I'm curious to talk to you about the sex thing and the toxic masculinity where the, was that something that you had friends experience or like Not really? I mean, I remember reading something about the, the sex thing and the bullying behind that. And to me, it was just like, I just wanted to be truthful. And I think when you're truthful, it's, you don't have to chase a trend or not. Sometimes you luck out and that, that truth you're exploring becomes resonant. But like, I think people are kind of full of shit when they're like, oh, yeah. I love this play because it's so echoing what's going on in our life. Like, we can make that connection, but if you're specific and truthful, it's universal. Like, the universal themes of it don't need. Yeah. The technology aspect of Small Under Repair attracted me simply for the thematic and the character stuff, which is like, here's these guys in a shifting world. Who gives a fuck about the technology? But the point is, is this technology takes these pre-existing things and it amplifies it. Yeah. And these guys don't necessarily know. And I feel like my generation, we didn't grow up with that. I mean, you're younger. You still remember a part in your life when you didn't have a 100%. Smartphone. I didn't get one until I was 17. Yeah, but yeah. suddenly you're now surrounded by people who never really had that experience. My daughter never had that. I mean, they just, they have that. Yeah. So that transitional moment is is sort of where, you know, the analog, digital sort of. But it's just yeah. thematic of these yeah. guys, like, you know, trying to catch up and maybe never catching up really. And that's part of the class story of it. And I spoke to this with Tom Fontana when he was on the show, and he created one of my all-time favorite shows, Oz. Oh, yeah. And um, you, you guys remind me a lot of each other, both in style and substance, and particularly even now with his show, you know, The Boston Narrative with Kevin Bacon. Um, God. I haven't seen that yet. Uh, it's great. It's, oh, it was awesome. And uh, But I'm curious, when you were writing this, you know, I the, sh the shit, the piss, the fuck, the cunt, like... You know, same same thing with Tom when he was writing Oz. You know that that had never really been seen on television before. It was HBO's first ever original content. Those, you know, it's not often in Broadway can be kind of a tight ass environment. Were you nervous well, at all? I think I was drawn to theater at a time where it was a lot more provocative, and theater was designed to question not just culture but question the audience. And people, again, I talk about you know Mamet, Sarah Kane, you know, uh, Mark McDonald. These guys were and gals where you're like watching their plays and you're like complicit in something going on. It's complicated. It's punk rock. It's yeah. unearthing shit. That's what drew me to theater because certainly movies weren't doing it. Um, you know, theater, things change. I feel like theater has, is in a transitional time right now. I don't feel like, I think it's probably harder to be more provocative in theater now for sure. But when I was writing small engine repair, that was the time where theater was the place that, that language is acceptable mm -hmm. and embraced and not edgy for edgy sakes, but like, let's just fucking go for it. Yeah. And talk about these things. You know, I mean, you read like sexual reversities and, yeah, and, totally. uh, you know, uh, I mean, Sarah Kane wrote a play that's like one of the most disturbing things I've ever read. Have you ever read her plays? Is it, was it lasted? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I one of her, yeah. I mean, it's crazy, but, and, and uh, she really affected me. She actually committed suicide and, I was listening to some interviews on her and I just thought she, I mean, I wish I could have met her. I just think she sounds like such an amazing person, but she, her, her thing was, look, she goes, I made an anti-war play. I'm an optimist. I want to, to make it as brutal and fucked up as it could be so that you would emerge thinking there's something wrong with this. Yeah. And that's sort of holding up a mirror. That's sort of, let's go to, uh, to these really dark, morally complicated places so that we can create a dialogue. And maybe actually have real change. And I think the danger becomes when you want to create everything a utopic version of the way the world should be, as opposed to creating art 
that is reporting on things. Mm-hmm. And the small engine pair falls somewhere in the middle of that, but certainly from the moment it started, the play was like all bets are off. Yeah. And you're either with it or you're against it. Now, some people bristle at that, but I mean, I got to say as a case study for the play, having walked off that stage hundreds of times in LA and New York, that women actually resonated with them more than any other like kind of demographic. Yeah. I mean, dudes like, like us, we, but in a general way as women, like first wave feminists were all like, I fucking got what you're saying there. Yeah. You know, I get it. Like they get past that stuff. And it's like, in order to say what you wanted to say, they get that you have to say in a certain way. Totally. And you have such a beautiful letter in, in the book, uh, the book version of the play. I get, I don't know if that's in the Samuel French version, oh, that you, right. the preface that I you think, wrote. I think it was only in the trade paper. Back oh, okay. Well, it was in the one that we got and it was so incredible. I highly recommend anyone listening, pick it up. But then I'm curious because it got extended and it was a smash hit in New York. Uh-huh. After that, did did you kind of feel exhausted by theater because then you did you, you had Lost Girls already in the pipeline? Or so after Small and Repair was at MCC, we were going to do a commercial run and it just didn't work out because you know doing a commercial straight play off Broadway run is just we had investors, we had money, but it was like you have to run at like seventy percent capacity for something like nine and a half ten months just to break even. It's just really hard. Yeah. That's why Broadway is a much better model because you make a massive amount of money in a shorter time and it can have a return. Now, the only way to do Broadway, which we explored for a little bit, you would have had to have fucking, you know, Matt Damon. And yeah. Whatever. Ben Affleck or Casey Affleck. Or, yeah. Or, whatever. yeah. Or, or, yeah. Or, or Tom, you know, yeah. Tom Hardy. I mean, great actors, but you would have had to get those and that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, or it's really hard to happen. Sometimes you luck out. Um, <clears throat> but they lost girls while I was doing small under repair in New York. Um, I was on stage and Jen, my wife was doing lost girls here in LA and that simultaneously. simultaneously. Wow. And then that play really took off in LA. It ran for like a year. It just resonated a lot. Um, and then MCC read the script and then they wanted to do it. So we had, they, they had a play labs reading and they read the play and it just killed in the audience. And then, yeah, they produced it. Wow. So, uh, and then, while I was doing those two plays, I was workshopping Rules of Seconds with Joe Bonney, and then we... Um, I love Rules of Seconds. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's it, honestly my favorite play ever. Just, it's so fun. And yeah. They, they've done it. You, you have not published it yet, right? No. Haven't published it. It's incredible. It reminds me yeah. so much of Harold Pinner at his prime. And well, it's, it's kind of like, because yeah. the period piece, yeah. it's a very, sort of a very much thematically resonant with like small and repair and yeah. bloody and it's fucked up and to me it was like dead wood and like it's funny because my survival job is I work at Hamilton so it's like so funny with the duels and oh yeah, yeah. yeah. at the musical yeah oh really I, I'm a bartender at Hamilton oh cool it's a, one of the, I work for Nederlander so I work at all the oh, shows oh cool I've never seen that like, yeah I'm dying to see that play um, if you want I'll hook it up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh, so we workshop that and then we eventually you know did it in LA and and you know, it's a big cast. It's expensive. It was always like, I don't know if we can get it to New York. We haven't had much luck with that yet. But it's been done. This, um, this guy did it in Pittsburgh. This guy I got to know really good who did Small Engine. He's like, what else do you got? I gave him a little seconds. They did it. I flew out and saw that show. How it was, was it? fucking amazing. Wow. It was like we did it downtown on a bigger budget, and it was like an equity show. Um, and it was beautiful. Giovanni did it, and it was great. Yeah. He did like sort of the unplugged version of it in like a black box with like just – it was like wood – reclaimed wood stage and it was just that they put money into the costumes into the blood effects and like chairs came in and out but that was it and it was fucking great wow and that's a play that really 
resonates with so much going on right now. That was what's fun about it because it's sort of heightened, has some sort of satirical elements. Totally. I, uh, I always, I always love that. I just thought that that play was really fun. Yeah. In the characters. Um, I mean, that's kind of the last thing. I mean, I have other play ideas, but since then, you know, my sort of screenwriting career took off. So I yeah. And talk to me about that. We, you, you wrote Stronger with Jake Gyllenhaal, which I dare say is his, one of his best, if not most undervalued, you know, everyone loves, you know, Nightcrawler, but Stronger, I mean. Yeah, God. he did a great job. Yeah. That was sort of the, Were you aware of the book? And No, that was like, I mean, that's definitely the, the script that sort of launched my career yeah. to a whole other level. I, you know, I had, uh, they got the book rights before the book was published. They were just looking Did you know about Jeff's, I mean, everyone knew about the bombing, but. I knew about the bombing. I didn't yeah. know the story. I had an excerpt of the book. Uh, I mean, it was funny. It came along at a time in my career where I hardly get anything sent my way. You know, every now and then I do a little rewrite here, an assignment here, try to get shit to happen. Yeah. Nobody was like, Who? so I think when they got that, they're like, New England, who is this? So they read a couple of my plays and they were like, okay, this guy's from the area. Yeah. And I read the excerpt and I'm like, dude, I, I know that. Like, I literally grew up 20 minutes away from here. And then, you know, it was a hard sell. And then I put together a massive amount of time putting the pitch together for that. And one of the producers on that was Scott Silver, who was really a great mentor and now we're kind of writing scripts together we really hit it off amazing he's from Worcester and he's written you know The Fighter and Eight Miles yeah he's fucking awesome dude <laughs> he just always busts my balls for doing it <laughs> like, what the fuck are you doing plays <laughs> um, so we just pitched this real hard sell and you know we sold it and then uh, wait was Jake always attached for Jack? he was not okay uh, so I wrote the script and then the script just floated around for a while and it got on the blacklist it got like way up on the list so wow. that got me a lot of attention yeah I was gonna say that must have ignited it, it totally it put so you on everyone's radar totally, sure and then you know look as a screenwriter it's like there's a lot of very successful writers who've never had a film made and then once you get a film made and they see that it works it's a whole other let thing. alone with the biggest and I think are. people that was one of those rare scripts that one I just had the time to really curate and two it was a good uh, very fortuitous that it was like New England it's like small and repair it's those same characters you were of that world yeah. of that world yeah. And I think, you know, I think the, the, the movie came out beautifully and I think the script was different than the movie, but the script, I think in some ways resonated even deeper with people because they weren't picturing the actors. They were just had that experience yeah. of, the, of reading it. And it yeah. was a great read. Um, you know, my, the producers, especially Scott, like beat the shit out of me to write that fucking draft. Really learned how to write a studio movie yeah. for them. So then, yeah, as soon as that was done, it was like, I've been kind of nonstop working on stuff. And, and can you talk about what you're working on now? Yeah, I mean, sure. You, you did say that Small Engine Repair, the movie's come out, and we won't say what, but you submitted to some potential festivals. Yeah, and so, so that's going at the festival circuit with that. And then right now I'm working on a Hulk Hogan uh, movie. Amazing. Scott and I are writing that. Um, a biopic? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's pretty, It's it's you'll have to see it. It's, yeah, I can't wait. We're writing that. Todd Phillips is attached to direct. Chris Helms was supposed to play his Hulk. Todd Phillips is huge. About to have the Joker hit with Shay. Yeah, yeah. Shay and Scott yeah. wrote that with Todd. No way. So, uh, which I'm really excited about. So that's the big thing I have. I just delivered a smaller movie, which is sort of a passion project that I think was a beautiful story. Uh, this basketball story about this small uh, high school in Tennessee. I'll tell you offline. I don't know if I yeah. can talk about that one. And then um, Scott and I wrote a fucking awesome Evil Knievel biopic. No way. Last year, and hopefully that gets me. Yeah. It's so good. Um yeah, and then, you know, just some other shit popping around trying to figure out what's next. I mean, I hope to get to direct another movie, and 
I got to say, you know, I, I said we wouldn't talk about it much, but your directing absolutely blew me away. And uh, somebody spoke near to your heart, Shay Wiggum and I were had a long dive yesterday talking about it. Like, man, I, I, I think you're about to become the biggest fight. Uh, you heard it here first on the podcast, you know. <laughs> Famous last in, words. In, in a year, I'm going to have to go through five channels of CAA to fucking get you to yeah, do one of these again. I, <laughs> I mean, um, it was interesting. Somebody gave me some great advice behind. I mean, like before I was directing that movie, I just called fucking everybody I knew. And some of the great best piece of advice I got, two or three things. One of them was like, hire the best people and get out of the way. Yeah. You get Shea Wiggum. Um, and then one was like, you just have to figure out what kind of director you are. Who, what kind of director? And you said, obviously Scorsese, who was, who was influencing you? I mean, look, I fucking Scorsese the best. I, I love Tarantino. I know that's a different thing, but, uh, you know, Cassavetes, all this shit. But for me, a lot of it was, I mean, obviously, I, honestly, Joe Bonnie was a huge influence for me in the way I see her work with actors and her tell a story. Granted, it's on stage, but I really took a lot of those principles that I learned in theater and tried to apply them. And I was like, okay, well, that's the kind of director I am. <clears throat> There's other areas that I can do better, but you, you learn. But then I just made sure I hired like a kick-ass DP who would get the visuals yeah. and I would be like, well, do you want a phosphorus light or this? And I was like, yeah. I'm like, I don't fucking know. Do you, do you feel like in a, in a weird way, Stronger was maybe your film school creating it was. the script? I, I did. And I, and I became very close to David Gordon Green. He's become, he was one like, of the best. And you know, man, and, and, and I remember having a dinner with David around the time I was getting this up and I was like, look, I, you know, the world was with me too and all that stuff. and just trying to wrap my head around it and be like, look, I didn't want to add something to a dialogue that's going to, you know, reduce the momentum or do, just say the wrong thing. And he was just like, look, dude, if you have to apologize for it, don't do it. But if you believe in your heart and what you're doing, just fucking do it. And I was like, you know, you're right. So that was like a really key moment. But I, I, I shadowed him through the most of the production of Stronger and I learned a ton. Oh, so I you mean, were on set for most of it? Yeah. yeah. Like David Gordon brings a huge influence in the way he makes movies. So and was just cool really to watch Shake realize that role that you created. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and seeing Jake as an actor, he's a different actor than like I am in the, the way I kind of want to work with. He's very intense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I... Uh, I met him recently and I saw him. Yeah. Like, he works as fucking ass off yeah and he loves theater I love that about yeah him. he does he yeah. does uh, yeah I mean it was really interesting watching but you know again it was like seeing you know David working with every different actor like like Joe does who Joe is a master at saying and even you know my wife's directing a play now and I see her as that same instinct which is like you just have to identify what kind of actor you're dealing with yeah everybody has a different thing totally and as soon as you figure that out you just you're not manipulating them but you're like okay here's how I give you that now here's how you do that and so, like, you know, working with Shay is this very specific thing. And it's more like, how do you harness that actor? Totally. Now, you could be like, no, you got to fucking do it this way and this way. And ultimately, at the end of the day, a great actor would be like, listen, if you need me to do that, I'll do that. And yeah. there's, like, three or four lines in the movie that Shay was like, look, I don't know about this, but I'll do it. Yeah. And two of them are huge lines. <laughs> like, you were right about that. But the vast majority of time yeah. with someone like Shay, for example, is you're like, he's like the canary down the mine shaft. If he starts flapping away, you're like, hold on a second. Like, Shane, what are you saying? Yeah, I just think this and that. Because, you know, a good, great actor knows more about that character than, than you as a writer, you as a director, or anything. Oh, yeah. So you really have to cast well and get that. And obviously, John and I are, Bernd and I are like super collaborative, uh, creative partners. We work on a bunch of shit together. He and I have a lot of stuff lined up. Um, and so I had him, and, and, but shit, and, and we just innately had that. I mean, we're really good friends. We had that relationship all built in. But with Shay, it was like, I just learned a ton from him. Yeah. And he's a very specific, I mean, there's a reason the guy's in everything. 
hundred percent. Same with John. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all the actors I really lucked out on. It was such a lesson hanging with you guys the other night of like how to be fucking cool. I mean, I, everyone on this podcast has been incredible. Kathleen Turner, there's been so many badass people. Oh, you, you guys. Kathleen Turner, that's cool. Yeah, Kathleen, it's been so great to me. Um, but it was so cool just to see you guys doing the work that every actor, writer, doing and just being so fucking cool about it. You know what I mean? Because it's easy to get trapped, especially in LA, of being a fucking cunt. And that's my words. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no. Yeah. I, I, I totally know what you're saying. I mean, yeah. I, I think... You know, for small engine repair, that the play nor the movie, and especially in many ways the movie, would not have worked if you didn't have people who really wanted to be there, were there for the right reasons. I mean, look, we didn't have trailers, you know? We yeah. were, people are working their ass off. I mean, Shay was, he's like, dude, he's like, I work more in one day and say more dialogue in one day in this movie than I do in like four days on that. And I think he's had more fun than he has. He ever. does. Yeah. But you yeah. just, you're there. So yeah. you just have to have actors with the right attitude doing it. And Jordana, same kind of thing. You know, I put my wife in it. She's fucking great. So you just got people who wanted to be there. And they do that extra inch. And a lot of it is, is you just say to them, it's like, you listen, you're valued. Like, yeah. Let's talk, you know? Uh, I'm not afraid of actors. I love actors. It's my favorite thing. So I, I mean, that's just where I come from. But if you get somebody in there who is a cunt, uh, man or woman, who is like, you know, prima donna and yeah. doesn't want to do it, then it's not going to work. No. So you have to vet that really well. I mean, we had Deb Aquila and Allison Estrin as our casting directors. Yeah, that's so great. Didn't bring people in the room who, unless they were like, this is somebody who's going to like have the right attitude and really want to be there. And, and I'm curious, uh, before we wrap up, I'd really like to talk to you about this because it's something I talk a lot on this podcast is it's such a tough time in the business, you know, where I feel like we're watching the death of the middle budget American movie. You know, it, it doesn't make sense for studios to do $10 million movies anymore. It makes sense for them to do a $250 million <laughs> corporate property and do 20 of them. Right. And I feel like, you know, the, the movies that you and I grew up loving, they're fewer and far between. And it's either, you know, you're in fucking Venom 17 or you do an NYU student film for $250,000 at wins Sundance. And as you're writing these scripts, how has it been finding, you know, ones that aren't a Marvel property or, or DC property getting financing or getting it together? Is it, right. do, you, do you feel like the content speaks I mean, for, for itself? Me, yeah. I mean, look, I think that there's more distribution opportunities now than in a lot of ways, which is, which is cool. But like, and most of the stuff I work on are tend to be worked through a studio and they're more sort of prestige movies, you know, I'm not, and I'd love to maybe like, I, I think I'd have a blast on like a Guardians of the Galaxy type thing, but I'm just not in that space. I mean, people building off of Stronger are like, oh, that's his sort of thing. Yeah. We, everybody, even though they're making Marvel movies, all the studios, everybody still wants to make movies with like a deep emotional impact. For sure. Uh, whether you call them awards movies or not. So, I mean, that's kind of the space I'm in, but like, I mean, I've just been lucky with that, but, uh, you know, Small Under Repair as an indie is the first time I've done that indie thing. And, you know, but I do think you're right. There's like a huge gap, maybe yeah. whatever, 20 years ago, we could have brought this team to some place and gotten the financing to do Small Under Repair through a studio. They just don't want to do that. Totally. It was like, I was watching Mystic River the other day and I was like, I feel like now this movie would never get made, you know? I mean, I don't know. Look, I think... I definitely think they're making less movies. I think the pendulum swings. I think we just have to figure out a lot of, you know, how the streaming services work and all that stuff. I mean, I, I did a job for uh, Netflix last December when I, I had a good time with them. I'm writing Hulk Hogan for them. I mean, I think that that's cool. You get so many people to see your shit. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, but, I mean, I also love sitting in the movie theater. Yeah. 
you know, having that. Uh, and is that important to you as a filmmaker and an actor that Swan to Repair gets the theatrical distribution? Or is that something <laughs> that you think might be an old guard way of, of going about? I don't know yet. I mean, I think that I'm excited to, like, do the festival things. Yeah. Obviously, I think... <clears throat> I don't necessarily think it's nostalgia. I think part of it is like, I like, I'm dying to be in an audience at a theater and watch that. I saw Ad Astra last night at the Art Flight. I would never. Well, it's the communal quality of that. And, and I I like that. I mean, I'm still old school in that way. I, I I mean, knock on wood, I'd love it to be played in theaters to some extent. And it will be. I know. Hopefully. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, That's awesome. Well, I I don't know if you like people too, but I always ask (coughs) this at the end. If if people would like to stay in touch with your work, what's a good way for that to happen? Instagram? Oh, um, I mean, I guess like IMDb. I IMDb. I mean, I, I just do, pro- I'm kind of private on social media. Totally. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there's a chance to plug yourself. We can cut it if you don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I just think you Google it. I mean, I'd love it if people, you know, um, read the plays, read the plays, produce the plays. Yeah. You know, I think Rules of Seconds will be, will be published pretty soon. And I'm working, as soon as I turn the corner on some of these scripts, I'm, I have a couple plays I got to get back into. So I, I love theater. I'll continue. To yeah. Well, John, it was such a pleasure to have you on. I hope one day we finally get to work together yeah, it's such an honor to call you friend i'm so excited for small engine repair thanks dude all right man if you like the show rate review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts thank you for listening